Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Changing Faith Podcast. I cannot wait to introduce you to our guest and her work today. I'm thrilled to introduce you to Bonnie Lewis. Bonnie has her MA in theology. She is a gifted writer, speaker, and theologian, and the author of Tim Shell, the first ever idiomatic Bible translation. Bonnie also serves as the Divinity and Creativity Coach with Radical Wellness Collaborative and is the co-host of the Tim Shell cast. She lives in Austin, Texas with her husband and two kids. And I can say this, if you've listened to this podcast for any length of time, you know that I love the sacred text. And I've had the privilege of reading Tim Shell, and I can tell you something in my chest is moved every time I sit down with it. It is, it is stunning. And today we get to dig deeper into it with its author. So Bonnie, welcome to the Changing Faith Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's really good to be here. Yeah. Well, as we begin, what would you like our listeners to know about you? I know. You know, you told me that and I was getting so excited because <laughs> I feel like I'm uh, such an anomaly. Um, when people hear woman theologian, I think it brings up like a certain picture of somebody. So um, we'll see if any of this fits. So I live in Austin, <laughs> Texas. I just moved here about three years ago. So we're still learning to call it home, but really love it. Been married about 12 years to so my husband, Cy, and then we have two kids, Chip and Scout. Um, and then I, this is the most random fact ever, but I've been an athlete my whole life, um, long distance running and different things. And then a few years ago, I really injured my back, so I couldn't run as much anymore. And so I started getting into new exercise. And this year, I won a Peloton bike with a three-year membership, and I never win anything, so I am still so elated by that fact. Um, oh, my goodness. I know. So that was super fun. So I've totally drank the Kool-Aid. I love uh, Peloton, and I try to get other people to do it. Um, I also am a huge book reader. I love books. I will read about three a week. I'll read anything. I'll read a sci-fi to a mystery to a a Bible commentary. It doesn't matter. I love books. I love the power of story. And I have one tattoo right here on my arm that is Harry Potter because I love uh. Harry Potter. <laughs> so I didn't read it when it came out because at the time I was like very deep into the my evangelical borderline fundamentalist upbringing. So you weren't allowed to read it. It was bad. Um, and then I <laughs> just uh, two years ago, I bought it for my son and we started reading it. We read all the books out loud together as a family and I absolutely love it. And it was such a sweet time for our family. And so I really wanted to get a tattoo. And my husband said, you need a gateway one. Just get something fun. So I got the Harry Potter glasses on my arm. <laughs> That's awesome. I read the first the first volume or the first edition or first story book, whatever it is. Yeah. You can tell how familiar I am with Harry Potter. <laughs> exactly. I read it to my kids when they were little and I had a voice for every character. It was hilarious. And then I got to the end and thought to myself, why is anybody upset by this book? I still like, don't it's know. Such an incredible story of redemption and love. And oh, I know. Anyway, I know it's incredible. So I'm a big Harry Potter fan. So those are That's my things. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> well, in addition to, uh, all of that, you've written a new translation of the Bible and you call it an idiomatic translation. Mm -hmm. And I'd love to start by you just sharing what you mean by that. Yeah, absolutely. So it's, um, it was very confusing what to land on when you tried calling it, right? So we have this um, sort of set of Bible translations that we're very used to, um, and they are monopolized by certain types of companies, right? So certain publishers make translations. And then usually certain group of scholars translate those translations. And so we're used to going, oh, it's my NIV, it's my um, ESV, my whatever it is you want to call it. Um, and when I was deciding, is this a translation or is it more of something different? I landed on translation because I really wanted people to experience the Bible in a new way, um, but in a way that was still sacred and holy. So uh, I had a lot of people when we came out with it say, this isn't a translation, it's a commentary, or this is more along the lines of what your opinion is or your thoughts are. Um, but then I had a whole group of people that had left their church or who are deconstructing their faith and said, for a really long time, 
Um, I was told the Bible didn't belong to me because I didn't fit into this certain set of rules or beliefs. Um, but when I read your translation, it, I feel like it's my door back in. I feel like I'm allowed mm. to pick it up again. And so um, I settled on the word translation because um, it felt right. It felt welcoming and it felt what I believe the scriptures to be, which is for everyone. So um, we use that. And then the idiomatic part of it, idiomatic means the thoughts, feelings, and emotions that are native to uh, the speakers or to the original people in the story. So what we wanted to do was have a translation in which it read like a story. So I didn't want one that was, you know, your NIV and then it had footnotes, right? So as you can attest to when you read it, it really just reads like the text. Um, but I wanted to pull out the backstory and the feelings and emotions of the characters that we find in the story. I grew up reading the Bible. I grew up reading, um, you know, things that my Sunday school teacher told me to read and even got when I got my master's, I always felt like these stories were very two dimensional. You know, one thing that happens a lot in the Christian church is we have pastors um, and very well-meaning, but come and sort of just preach as this is what the text means. And you get sort of a moral storyline. And I always found that to be difficult to relate to. I always found that me as like a living, breathing human coming up against struggles, um, coming up against loss and grief or depression or anger or any of those feelings that I had. And I'm talking to also my therapist about, right? And I'm sorting through these things. I never saw them being pointed out, not only in the text, but also not in anybody preaching the text. So mm. I wanted to take my skills um, of Greek and Hebrew and exegesis that I learned in my master's program. And I wanted to partner with a friend of mine who's a psychologist. So he was actually on the translating team with me. And I wanted to sort of bring together what I knew about the story, the cultural and historical background, um, what the words tell us um, about when this was used or when we use it in this word paired with this word, how the meaning changes, really dive deep into there to inform what the character might be feeling like. So a really good example that we use actually on the Kickstarter, we started, we launched a Kickstarter for this project was with Abraham and Isaac. And I was mm -hmm. always told you know, okay, so God tells Abraham to kill his son. And so we should all, he does it, or he was going to do it. And so we should all be like Abraham. And I just was always like, what? <laughs> Something's not adding up. Um, is Abraham mad? Uh, is he sad? How, how does Isaac feel? And what about Sarah, right? There's all these loose ends for me that I felt um, empathetic towards, but I never understood why we never talked about it. I literally had never heard about it. So that was my first story that we attempted to see if it could work. And so if you read it in the text, um, it pulls out the uh, struggle that Abraham goes through, what it feels like for Isaac to have your dad say, hey, I'm going to sacrifice you, and what it feels like to be Sarah in that story. So, um, so that's what the whole text should be like. It should feel like um, we use idiomatic that you are learning what the characters might have been feeling or thinking, um, because I believe that it gives us a better chance to connect the story then to ourselves or to our neighbors and and build empathy in that way. Yeah, and when I when I read it, there was almost a sense of like there was a mythic quality to it. Not for those of you listening, myth. Um, we often use it in our context is that that's a lie. Mm -hmm myth in the depth of the word means that which is always true. Mm -hmm. And so as you brought out the emotions of people, I all of a sudden was like, oh my goodness, I have three kids. Yeah. What would I be feeling if I had to take a three days journey knowing what's at the end of it? Yeah. What is my wife going to say when I get home? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. What, what was it that spurred you to undertake the project? Yeah, it's a great question. So, um, Real quick, a word back on what you just said. I'm so happy you said that. Uh, my hope is that with, that you could connect. And one of my good friends always reminds me and tells me um, in storytelling. He's like the he always tells me he's like Bonnie. The farther you go into the particulars of somebody, the more universal it's going to become for everybody else. And so I knew that that was sort of the door in. The way to connect with these characters is to go the farthest we can into the particulars of them. And then that will give voice to something that we find universal in us. So 
Um, you know what? It's so funny. I grew, like I said, I grew up in the evangelical church. I, um, I really ascribe to a theology of if you do the right things, good things will happen to you. Um, probably until I was about 27. <laughs> so, uh, for a really long time. And we, uh, lived in California and this weird thing happened to us and we got super sick. And we were sick, 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 and we could not figure out mm. why. We were so sick. In fact, I had to quit my job to take care of everybody. We had to go to doctor's appointments. Nobody knew why we were sick. Um, at the same time, my mom, who was living in Colorado, actually, she got diagnosed with breast cancer. So it was like this time of upheaval in our lives. And um, we decided, let's go be by my mom. And then also we can sort of have help and support while we figure out what it is that needs to be done for our own health. So we packed up, we picked up ship, we moved to Colorado and we didn't know anybody there. I only knew my parents, but we didn't have um, any community. Um, and when we got there about a week or so in, we had stopped being sick and we never got sick again. And I was like, what's hmm. going on? So we did um, sort of talking with our old landlord and we found out that actually our house had black mold in it, the one that we had been living in. Oh my goodness. So we all had, we all got this black mold poisoning. And so that's what was causing us to be really sick. Well, so we went on this like huge health journey, which is a totally different story. But um, one of the things that happened for me is that I got inflamed all over. So my joints were really inflamed, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I was running then and I was running and one day my back started hurting, but I was 27. So I'm like, why is this happening? <laughs> I like, guess should not be happening. And uh, it turns out they actually herniated three discs in my back and it wasn't caused by the running. It was caused by the inflammation. And oh, wow. So, yeah. Right when that happened, I also got pregnant uh, with our second child. And so it was tough because it couldn't diagnose what happened to my back because you're pregnant. They don't let you do anything. And they basically tell you, like, just take a Tylenol, which is like taking a cough drop. It like, doesn't touch it. <laughs> well, I was like, just miserable. And then as the months went on, it got really bad. And I actually became paralyzed uh, from the waist down on my left side. So I couldn't walk. Oh, my goodness. There. Yeah, it was terrible. And it was freezing. It was freezing. I'm from Arizona and California. And I'm like now stuck in this frozen tundra. I cannot move. I have a toddler at home. We know no one. Um, and so I was really struggling with depression and with that thought of what did I do wrong to deserve mm. this? It was at the same time I had been working and had been doing more as a woman in ministry, which was also a big no-no from my background. So I thought maybe that was it. I was just trying to figure it out. Um, and then in January of that year, uh, we found out that our baby's heart had stopped beating and uh, the cord had actually wrapped around his neck and he had passed. So I ended up delivering him as a stillborn. Mm. And it was in that moment, um, I could not piece everything together the way that I always had. I had always, I did this thing, um, which is why I had that blessing. Or I made a mistake here and I feel shame about that. And I think God's punishing me here. So um, a lot of how I viewed God was this mean, vengeful God. Um, but when we lost our son, I just, I could no longer allow that to be true in my own life. So I came to a head of either I believe things that are wrong and I, who I think God is, is not who he is and it's not how he operates. And so I need to find out if that's true or it is. He is mean and he is vengeful and he is out to get me. Um, and so if that's the case, I don't know if I want to be a part of this anymore. So mm. that was the big turning point for us is I realized um, I think I, I think I'm believing in a God that is not true. I think I'm believing in a system. I think I'm believing in a theology that's not correct, but I don't know. And so I went back to the stories that were the most confusing to me right? The ones that pointed to a vengeful God, the ones where I'm like, what about these other characters in the story? And I just started studying and reading and listening and just sort of digging and digging. And it took a really long time. Um, but I was able to piece back together some of the stuff that felt like it wasn't going to be able to be pieced back together. 
And so those are the 20 stories that you find in Tim Shell. So I kept running into a bunch of people that um, had deconstructed or had an evolving faith, but they said, I, I have no idea what to do with the Bible because every time I read it, I have those same feelings of shame or I hear that same way to interpret the text. And so I realized that the work I had done to allow myself to read the Bible again and to allow myself to see a different side of God that I had never heard before, that maybe it would be service to others. Hmm. So um, that's sort of what prompted the whole idea of it. Oh, my goodness. What was it that didn't lead you to just say, I'm done with the whole thing? And I ask that because I know so many people who've gone through struggles and and your what you and your family went through is just so deeply painful mm -hmm. and yet what what do you what would you say it is or was in that moment that led you to go i need to i need to give this one more shot versus i'm done with all of this yeah i think in the moment um it felt survival it felt like i can't i can't lose that too hmm. you know we had lost so much community. We had lost, because uh, we had moved, we had lost the baby. I had literally lost my ability to walk, run. So I wanted to embark on the journey. I was also so terrified because throwing that out, I, I don't think I would have known who I was. Hmm. Um, I also have, I don't know the right word for it, but a little bit of something in me of, um, if I do decide to give this up, I'm probably not going to ever come back. So I want to make sure that I really study. I really do the work. I really right? like I'm very much um, a person that gets all the facts, gathers all the info and then makes a decision. And then I'm clear on the decision. I don't like going back. I don't like uh, going, oh, shoot, I should have. So I wanted it to be something that I knew to be really true. And I also knew there was a lot of my schooling and a lot of my upbringing in which being a woman was not seen as an advantage. It wasn't necessarily always a disadvantage, but there was something inside me um, at all times. And then especially in this moment where it could have been, it could have been anything, but I think losing a baby was so uh, profound as to what it was my journey as a woman was like. Um, and I constantly felt through all my schooling and even in that time that like, there's something here that's unturned. There's a way that I'm not able to connect to the scripture, um, being a woman. And I don't know what that is. And that bothered me. I don't, I don't love <laughs> not having the answers, which is hilarious because I've had to become really comfortable with that in my faith life. Um, but I wanted to know why, right? Like on an institutional level, why is this? Why can't we? Why is, is it that only um, certain people can translate and only certain people can do this thing with it? And so that bothered me. And so there was a, a bit of, I can't lose this too. Hmm. There was also a bit of, um, if I'm going to go down, I'm going to go down fighting. <laughs> so I want, I want to be able to find the answer. There was a little bit of that. Fascinating. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad you took the time because it's, it's, produced uh produced something great and uh was it rainer maria rilke talks about this idea of everything is in gestation mm. uh, in his letters to a young poet so yeah. um so you you write this translation after obviously tons of work um lots of study personal hardship and you land on the name tim shell yeah i'd love to know what does that mean and why did you choose that particular name for this translation. Yeah. Um, it's what so everybody always says to me, Oh, you must have, you must be a huge Steinbeck fan. You must have read. And I haven't even read East of Eden. And I'm like, that's so <gasps> embarrassing. Like, and here I am saying I'm such a book nerd. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that mortifying? That's like saying you like stand up comedy, but you're not a Seinfeld fan. Exactly. I mean, exactly. It's, it's embarrassing. Gosh, we'll talk about. <laughs> Thanks for being vulnerable. <laughs> yeah, man. I feel like I just like did, I did the confessional you were talking about. <laughs> so I need to read it. Okay. I know that. Um, but I, to be honest, I was going to read it on the beach. Like I felt like that was a good time. And then we didn't go to the beach this summer. But there's no excuses. I'll read it. So anyways, um, 
when I was uh, doing the translation, I came across the word in my Hebrew studies. And it's in Genesis when Cain kills Abel. And it me, it's like loosely translated, thou mayest, or we have a choice. And I was so fascinated by that word because in my journey at that time, in my faith journey at that time, I realized that I had grown up in a faith system where I didn't have a choice. Mm. The way you read the text was one way. And if you didn't read it that way, or you came to your own conclusion that was different, then it was wrong. One of my favorite sayings um, that I heard from one of my um, my spiritual director, who's actually a Jewish rabbi, and I love him so much, and he always tells me, he says, remember that uh, something that we say in the Jewish tradition is that the Torah has 70 faces, that there's all these different ways to read it, right? And he always yes. talks about how it's like turning a gem. And he's like, there are so many different ways. And that is so true. When you go into the text, when you go into the Hebrew or you go into the Greek, you look it up. People are always like, well, the Greek says, I'm like, the Greek says 12 different things. <laughs> it just depends on what uh, the culture is and the history is and how you're taking it. So um, I realized the Bible is something for us to unfold. It's something for us mm. to be invited into to continually search um, it is not something that people should ever have a monopoly on and say, this is the exact way to read it all. Um, but it should cause wonder. It should cause discussion. It should be how it used to be, which is like these oral stories that we passed around and that we dissected and discussed. So I wanted that to be um, what this book was, an invitation, a way that people read it. And they're like, wait, it says that? Wait, are you sure? And that you talked about it. You know, it's so funny when I put it on Kickstarter. <laughs> this guy wrote me and he's like, I just wanted you to know I am not supporting your translation. And I'm like, okay. And then he writes, um, I've, I read your practice chapter on Abraham and Isaac. I printed it off. I printed five copies, one for me and my men's group. And we have spent the past like week and a half and we read yours. And then we looked at all these other translations and we did this and we decided that we don't like your translation. And I wrote him back and I'm like, <laughs> totally fine. Um, but also you did exactly what I wanted you to do, <laughs> which was oh, that's awesome. Like, learn and think critically and decide and look at the ways it's translated. Right. So um, that was part of it. And then on a deeply personal note, it actually was this moment of feeling very seen when I found it in the Hebrew text, because uh, we after we gave birth to our stillborn, we decided we would cremate him. And then my husband and I walked up to Red Rocks and up on one of the trails and he's, we spread his ashes. And um, after we had spent some time praying and just being in quiet, it was time to walk back down the mountain. And it was, we didn't want to be quiet with each other, but we didn't want to say much. And so I put on Mumford and Sons at the time it was like a big album in my life and their song Tim Shell came on. And I don't know if you've heard it, if you haven't, you should go like pause this and go listen. Um, it's just this beautiful song. And that was, became such a moment for us. Um, that mm. walk down that mountain, it often reminds me of, of what we see actually Abraham doing in one of these stories is he's up on that mountain and then he has to walk down and realize like what happened, his faith sort of unraveling at that moment. And that's how it felt, felt for us. So, um, it's a twofold meaning, but, um, I love what it, what it came to be and how it still represents that journey. And in many ways, the gift that our son did give us, um, even in his passing. Whoa, that I don't even know what to do with all I just heard. <laughs> I was, I honestly was expecting, well, this is what it means in the Hebrew. Next question. Oh, <laughs> this is, you know, for those of you listening, we often talk about our next step. And maybe as you're listening to Bonnie talk, there's something in you that's kind of like, I'm interested, but I mean, we're talking about the Bible here, which is the foundation of our faith. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that's so important, you talked about um, one of your professors who was a rabbi especially when it comes to the Jewish tradition. If you read Jewish commentary, they don't take anything out. They leave it all in there. And in that, they invite you to be a part of the ongoing conversation that the Bible is. And I feel like in some ways, what I what I hear you talking about, and as I'm learning about the process behind what I read, mm -hmm. you're actually doing something very ancient. Yeah, exactly. So it's 
a lot like uh, the concept of Midrash. So we have some ancient Midrash and we have some contemporary Midrash. And it's basically the same thing. But like I said, Christianity doesn't have that. We don't have that genre within our tradition. So um, it is part of this ongoing discussion, wrestling um, conversation where we get to say, if the Bible, this ancient text should mean something today, we have to keep bringing it in. We have to keep unpacking it. We have to keep turning the gem. Yeah. And what is Midrash? Yeah. So Midrash is this, um, uh, what would happen is you'd have these oral traditions or you'd have, um, even as time goes on and it's, it's been written down, but basically, um, rabbis or, uh, groups, of certain like sects of different Judaism would come together and they would say, uh, what do we think is between the lines? So this like famous pay- saying is like, you have everything that's written on the text and then you have everything that's in between the lines, everything the story doesn't tell us. What did it feel like? Um, what did it sound like? What did it hear? So it's where they take the bare bones of a story that they might find in the Torah and then they put in sort of these other questions. Um, I think Sarah might have done this. I think that uh, Abraham might have done this. So actually we have some mid that I took from some of the Midrash here in the book. So one of my favorite examples of it is um, Adam and Eve are in the garden, Eve eats the apple, they get kicked out. And like, as far as we're concerned, that's usually what we hear. That's what I heard. So don't disobey or <laughs> you're done. Um, and in Genesis 4, that we see a God that comes and sits with them, right? And he knits them clothes, it tells us. And so to help them through their shames, they're not ashamed, right? And so he he knits clothes for them. Well, Jewish Midrash actually says that the items that he uses to knit the clothes is the skin of a snake. And so it becomes this beautiful story about a God that sits with his people, uses the thing that they are the most shamed about and says, I'm going to knit something new in you. I'm going to create something new about you. So um, it's this beautiful way to connect the dots and it makes God, it makes the people in the story uh, more real and it allows us to connect with them as we're reading this ancient text. Yes. Yeah. And it it makes the, the characters human. Yeah. Makes them come alive. Mm-hmm. So, I'd love to hear about your process because you chose um, specific passages and sections. The entire book of Ruth, mm-hmm. um, and I'm curious what informed that, and what were some of the biggest challenges you had in working through the translation. Yeah. So, like I said, I picked um, and like just 20 stories that bothered me. <laughs> There's not <laughs> a better answer than that. I don't know how to say that well. Um, these were 20 stories that I heard growing up or that I studied and that just uh, they irked me the way that they didn't make sense anymore. And they were the biggest ones in my faith journey of um, I got to unravel this. So uh, one of some of the biggest challenges there um, is actually has created more opportunity in my brain as, as time has gone on. But you're sitting and you're reading it and there literally are five, six, seven different ways to translate one word. Um, so it's tough because you're reading it and you're like, oh, but if it's translated this way, the story goes that way. If it's translated this way, the story goes that way. So having to decide and pick was very hard. It was a exercise of discernment. It was an exercise of also looking at the gamut of narrative scope. What do what did other theologians say about this and et cetera, et cetera. And it was also an exercise of allowing myself to go Oh, but that's the beauty of it, right? That's mm. that. That's what we want to happen. So uh, that was very, very challenging. The other thing that was challenging um, was I wanted to stay, and I think we did this, hopefully, in the uh, genre that each book was originally written in. So if it was mythical history, like the plagues, we kept it sounding like mythical history, um, narrative, poem, et cetera, et cetera, parable. So um, that was challenging because I had never done anything like that before, right? I had never, ever written in mythical history. Who has? So that was challenging. Um, But I also loved it, and I'm up for the challenge. I really enjoy writing, so I liked doing that. Um, And then the other thing that was um, a bit of a challenge was figuring out how I wanted to knit everything together. So the 20 stories, you're not going to get the whole gamut of it, um, of the book, obviously. But I wanted it to be a journey that if you read from the beginning to the end, some people just 
grab a story and read it. But I wanted it that if you wanted to read from the beginning to the end, you could, and that hopefully you would find a thread throughout the whole thing. So the stories aren't in order. They're totally out of order from what it is in the Bible. And I like am half wanting to tell you the thread and half wanting to know if you figured it out on your own. Um, No one's ever come to me and been like, oh, I figured it out. But they're very purposefully placed where they are placed um, because there's something that connects each story. So that was a challenge, but it was also a lot of fun. So, And one of the things um, that I appreciated about the the process that seemed to be clear anyway that you went through is you talked that, well, I'll back up. One of the questions I receive um, quite often, I actually just received an email a few weeks ago, maybe it was last week about um, what is the better translation? And it was talking about the literal words. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you've mentioned this a bit, and it's important to remember as we listen that for Greek was the lingua franca. It was the, the language of commerce around the empire, which meant just like English in Australia or English in England or English in the United States or for our, our Canadian friends, eh? Um, <laughs> different words, the same word can have a different range of meaning. Mm-hmm. So when I'm asked, what did the word literally mean? It's a very common question, but you seem to transcend that in the way that you want about translating it. And you even spoke about um, this uh, reality of interpretation Mm -hmm. and how that goes in the translation. Could you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah. So I used to think that you could translate something non-biasly and (laughs) there would be no interpretation involved. And then I realized that was absolutely not true. So everything that we read that's been translated, even if it's from French to English, um, has this sort of middle area where uh, the person translating has to pick and has to choose. And so with that, whoever is translating is going to bring, even if they try not to, uh, their lens, their way they view the world, their economic status, their um, skin color, their gender. I mean, it's it's all sort of wrapped up in it. So one of the biggest things that happened to me as I was translating and then what I've heard later is I get these messages all the time saying, I had no idea what a difference it would make to read a Bible translated by a woman. And that was mm-hmm. so shocking to me um, because that's how I've always read it, right? Like that's what my uh, my lens is and the voice in my head. Um, but I realized after writing it and after I read it now is that being a woman coming to the text is I've interpreted things in the text that men just haven't seen. So all of our translations that we have up until this point are translated by men and they have been for a really long time, mostly white, straight men. And so to have a woman's perspective changes it. Um, One of my favorite passages, and I didn't even realize that this was happening until my editor and the psychologist on our team, they're both male. So I would bring these and they'd say, oh my goodness, I'd know I, I never would have picked that up. So we have this story of the dry bones in Ezekiel, right? It's in Ezekiel 37. And it was one of my favorite passages um, to translate and then also to read um, post-translation. And so you have this picture and Ezekiel goes into this valley and how we're normally told is he goes in this valley, there's all these dry bones. And um, he has to prophesy to the bones, the bones build up, and then they have this great army. And so it was always this sort of might power story. Um, And it was one of the passages that bothered me because that seemed like we should get something more out of this than just this army. Um, So I went in to translate it. And what I found out is in the Hebrew, every time that Yahweh was used, the pronoun he was used. But then every time spirit was used, the pronoun she was used. So the first thing I did in that passage, I just went and replaced spirit with she to see what would, is there something different? Is there something that comes up? And you realize as you go digging into she and as you go digging into the Jewish idea of God, that one of the biggest ways that they have always referred to God is the womb one. And so you have this story, actually, where he goes into this field and there are these dry bones, 
And there's this wilderness that represents what it's like to be in the womb, to be protected and to be safe. And so when he prophesies and the bones come together, that's womb language. That's what actually happens in a woman when they are pregnant and this baby is formed. Um, and so it became this beautiful, mind-blowing picture mm. of me of, oh my goodness, there's so many layers. There's so much here uh, that we just don't hear about. Um, but I also think that when we leave our interpretation and our translating to only one group of people, we miss out on these other ways of seeing the text. And so we end up making God actually a lot smaller when he's so big and so infinite. And we've been given this beautiful gift of seeing him based on the exact way he's made us to be. Hmm. What would you say to someone who would say, well, can't you just make the Bible say whatever you want then? <laughs> I, I, and I'm, I'm guessing you may or may not have heard that mm -hmm. through this process. Yeah, totally. Uh, I've heard a lot of things that, that is one of them. <laughs> um, so, and I, sure, anyone can do that. I think anyone does that anyway, right? So um, that is why we have people that are doing things right now in God's name that half of other people say God would never do that. That's not who Jesus was. Um, so yeah, you can absolutely do that. I think the difference um, with that would be the difference between simply just interpreting something right? Grab, grabbing the, a verse and saying, this is what it means, which is actually what most pastors do. Um, I am shocked by the amount of pastors or people that don't know how to navigate around a text, um, you know, and who often will buy sermons online. And part of that is because they're so stressed out with running mega churches and like making quotients, they don't have time to do it. But that is not digging in, right? That's not this like, thing we get to bring to the table and uncover. That's a, okay, I just got to get this thing done. So it happens all the time. Um, but the difference between where we allow and give permission for interpretation in the midst of translation is to look at the words, to look at the history and to look at the culture and say, okay, here's the parameter. Like we're not making something up right? We're saying anything you'd ask a question about, we can point you to where we found it. We can point you to where we went, um, the books we use, the things we, things we studied. Uh, but the other thing is, is that I do still believe that there are some really core certain truths of our faith. And if we are translating things and we're interpreting things and they don't go against those core truths and instead they bring more life to them, um, then there's nothing but good that can come of that. Yeah. Yeah, that's helpful. I mean, mm -hmm. I think about it this way. There are certain things you could say about my wife, and I would know in a split second whether or not that's consistent with who I know her to be. Yes. Exactly. There are some things you could say, she did this, she said this. I'd be like, not in a million years. Yeah. yeah. And, and so I think even again, as we're thinking about the Bible, which especially as you shared growing up in the evangelical world and more uh, uh, fundamentalist upbringing, that's the one like piece of the pie you just don't mess with. Yeah. I and know. yet in not messing with it in some ways, that's probably not the best word to use, but in not questioning it, what we've missed for so long is the depth and the beauty of it, which mm -hmm. is what you're working to bring back to us. Or yeah, I would say back to us because yeah. in the ancient world, this um, this definitely existed. Uh, what I want to do, tell me if you're game for this. I'd love for our listeners to get a feel of what this is like. Yeah. And so, um, so often we have like our, I would say, more common translations, the translations that we're used to. And so for those of you listening, what I'm going to do is read the Beatitudes. Now, the Beatitudes are the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is found in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And it's when Jesus is with his disciples and begins speaking to them. Mm -hmm. And the Beatitudes are blessed are so-and-so for they will so such and such. So I'm going to read these verses. This is Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 12. And then we're going to have Bonnie read it from Tim Shell. And you'll get a sense of what uh, she's done and what the work that's being done here is. So. I'll begin reading actually in verse one. Okay, wait, and pause really fast. We okay, changed yeah. the names of all the stories. So like this one is who is blessed. Right. Um, so we changed them. And the, the funniest thing is that at the end of it, my editor's like, I think we should change the titles. And I'm like, I don't think we can do that. And he's like, really? 
after all this, you're worried about the titles? He's like, that's not even in the text. I'm like, oh, I guess you're right. So yeah, anyway, it's just a funny Yeah, thing. the Beatitudes is what it's traditionally called. <laughs> yeah. Like all but the, for some reason I had a hang up on the title. Like, no, that's oh, too that's far. <laughs> I know. There's okay. the headings in the Bible, you know, the ones that break up. My favorite one, it just says a dead girl and a sick woman. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> so way to object way to objectify some people. <laughs> yeah, like no bedside manner here at all. <laughs> okay, good. And Jesus also didn't call it the Sermon on the Mount. That's right. Yep. He's talking to his disciples, nonetheless. Uh, Matthew 5, verse 1. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, that was Matthew 5, 1 through 12 from the NIV, the New International Version. And now we're going to hear it from Bonnie from Tim Shell. All right. Everyone knew about Jesus. His name was spreading as a hero of the people throughout Syria. He said what everyone felt, disregarding the potential ramifications. He was a bit of a renegade, so people whispered about him in quiet rooms, but they went to great lengths to find him. They brought him all the sick, those suffering from numerous different diseases and pains, as well as those who were oppressed by demons. They brought in people who suffered from seizures and those who were paralyzed, and he healed every one of them. Before long, massive crowds accumulated around Jesus. People from Galilee who were Jewish in heredity and practice, non-religious Greeks from the Decapolis, and people from Jerusalem and Judea. Even men and women from beyond the Jordan came to find Jesus. The crowd was always compromised of a wide variety of life, containing different beliefs in many different gods. The Roman Empire had taken over the land. Soldiers paced the streets, and their swords were a constant, threatening presence. Everyone, no matter his, no matter his or her origin, was unsettled in home and heart. The people were waiting. The whispers continued, and the crowds grew. As Jesus went up on the mountain and sat down, they all found themselves touching shoulders in close enough proximity to feel one another's breath. They needed something from Jesus and from each other, but they were not sure what it was. And Jesus, knowing every background and belief and system and God and practice instructor and structure present in the crowd, began his teaching. Blessed are the atheists, the agnostics, the ones who don't step foot into a place of worship or utter a prayer in their mouths, the woman who has left her faith, the man who is adamantly full of doubts, and the child who tests the boundaries to learn about what forgiveness is. To all of you who have been told you won't receive the blessing of God, I am hemming you in. Blessed are the marginalized, those on the edges of society, the gay woman who is not welcomed, the black man who is wrongfully punished, the conservative and liberal who are falsely judged and pitted against one another, the families separated at the border, the ones driven out of their countries, the ones in constant pain, and the ones who are tortured by addiction or mental illness. When no one listens to your story or believes your experience, I hear you and I am on your side. Blessed are the ones who are faithful in the mundane, the many with no power or prestige, the gatekeepers of ordinary, the ones who won't make a name for themselves, the ones who do homework and housework, who build character over wealth, who are faithful tillers of their soil. The new earth is being built by you. Blessed are the canaries, the ones who keep watch for harm, the ones who resist the structures at hand, the ones who risk their lives in order to find it, the men who speak up for the women, the women who speak up for the men, and the people in power who speak on behalf of the oppressed. Blessed are the ones brave enough to tell their story amidst a sea of noise. 
Blessed are the people who ache deep in their bones, craving a new way forward to start a new path. We will forge the path together. Blessed are you who invite the people on the edges into the center, the ones who love radically, who set a larger table and tear down walls, the ones who have lost friends, family, money, and influence on account of loving greatly. My mercy belongs to you. Blessed are the misfits, the ones who don't belong, you who ask the honest questions, challenging the leaders and the ones in charge, you who aren't satisfied with the answers given, willing to hold up everything you believe to the light, you who struggle and wrestle to find the goodness and truth. You are blessed, for this is what God is like. Blessed are you who listen to the stories of the oppressed, refuse to dote on privilege, decide to dismantle unbalanced systems, and seek empathy in the face of anger and strife. Blessed are you who seek peace when everyone around you is in conflict. This is the divine in you. Blessed are the courageous ones, the fearless, the ones who take a stand, yet no one notices or comes to your aid. I am walking alongside you, embracing you. When the world has abandoned you, I will never leave your side. And blessed are you when you have been taught you aren't enough, when people shame you, calling you names and stealing your dignity. You are blessed when your enemies speak guilt upon you, when they make it possible for you to thrive. When those who claim to love me do not love you, I will make a way for you. Oppression is not new, yet in my kingdom, it never has the last word. My goodness. That, oh, by the way, that the reason I asked Bonnie to read that one, that's my favorite portion. Like I, I, literally get emotional listening to you read it. Mm. There's so so much power um, in what's being said there. Mm. Thank you. What, you don't have to narrow it down to one. Maybe you have a list, but what's your hope for this, for this work that you've, uh, that you've done for this work that you've created? Um, You know, when I uh, went to this two day, like, I don't know, communications thing. And you had to, there's basically get feedback on your projects. And Tim show was almost written and I just had to edit it. And I was like, just stalling. <laughs> I was terrified. Like if I edit it, then I have to turn it in and then people have to read it. So, um, uh, we were there and this guy came up to me and he had said, Hey, I looked up your, I looked up Tim shell and I read some of the, the passage that you had on your Kickstarter. I said, Oh, and he said, you know, I'm, I'm a pastor in Chicago and I lead a church of people who grew up very conservative and who have since their faith has changed and evolved and they have been kicked out of their families. They've been kicked out of their churches. They have been told that the Bible isn't for them. And Mm. he's, he's this guy, he's like six, seven, he's like huge. And we're standing there on the corner in LA on the, of the street. And I'm just like sweating and I'm carrying these bags and I'm thinking like, where is this conversation going? And he <laughs> starts just weeping. And mm. he said, um, he was like, I can't wait to buy this for them. Um, because this will be their door back in. He's like, I, I know they will feel heard and seen. He said, because forever, all anybody gives them is read this author, read this thing. He was like, but what you have here is this encounter with the divine um, that's new and that's welcoming and that's good. So my hope is that people can read it and feel that. Um, People get to experience God in a new way. Um, People get to find themselves in the story. I never felt like growing up I served a God that knew what it was like to be me. And so that was really hard to feel counted. Um, my hope is that that changes for anybody else that feels that way. Um, so I want people to be able to find themselves in a new way. And I also want to reintroduce, to bring back, as you said, this way of learning and this way of holding and viewing the text that offers life and permission and goodness um, that we've lost along the way. So. Um, I would absolutely love that um, for people. You know, as you're you're sharing just then, I was reminded a friend of mine. Um, he often said that 
we've been trained to go to the Bible as the last word. Mm. So you have a question, here's chapter and verse that settles it. You have a problem, here's a story that settles it. And he was always insisting, he's like, the Bible is the first word. Mm -hmm. The Bible gets the conversation going. It gives birth to something new in this world. And yeah. I, as you're sharing, I'm like, this is what you're doing. Like you're, you're bringing us back to like, whoa, 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 this is the first word. Mm -hmm. um, it breathes something into us. And uh, so thank you. I, I honestly can't thank you enough, um, first of all, for sending it to me and then um, for being on the podcast and for doing all this work. It's obvious that you've, you've poured tremendous amounts of energy in life and education and life experience into this. Mm -hmm. um, for those who are listening, how can they learn more about you and your work? Yeah. So if you go to, I like don't have a website about me. I'm like, I just on Instagram and I post pictures of my tattoo and my kids. <laughs> but that's it. But uh, sometimes I do fun things on there. So Bonnie Gail Lewis is my Instagram. Um, more about me. Uh, you can go to Radical Wellness Collaborative. But then more about Tim Shell. Um, timshelltranslation.com. There are like the story behind it, the Kickstarter behind it. Um, and then also some more excerpts from, I think the Beatitudes is on there. And then a few different stories. So you can read what it feels like. And then, so when we did the Kickstarter, we had a goal of, I think like 31,000 and then we ended up raising, I think like 46,000, um, which I nice. still, I know. And you know, what's funny is I thought it was going to be a bunch of churches that I had like preached at or knew that like, we're going to pay for all this stuff. And almost none of them did. And turns out that it's, um, it's controversial to translate the Bible. So, um, <laughs> they, um, it was really neat. It was like this grassroots roots movement, like 98% of the people I've never, ever met in person. And they wow. just read it and were like, I found life here. So I'm still so eternally grateful for those people for like, just letting us do it. And I got to pay my editor and all those people. So, um, Everybody that was a backer already has their book, but we're doing um, another print edition. So the same story is just another print edition. So if you want to pre-order yours, the pre-ordering ends next month. So if you want to pre-order yours, you can go to timshelltranslation.com and you can put in your pre-order for a hardcover or softcover. And if you um, do it now, a uh, thing we're doing is immediately you'll get a digital edition while you wait for your pre-order to come so that you could still read it now um, if you so choose. And what's the date that it ends? October? Um, we were waiting to hear back from the printers because they're kind of delayed from COVID, but it'd probably be like the end of the month. Let's just say the 23rd because that's my birthday. <laughs> October 23rd? Yeah. We'll okay. just say that uh, <laughs> around there. So I'll, but I'll put it on, we have an Instagram too. So I'll make an announcement like one week left or something as soon as I hear back from the printers. Perfect. And we will in the notes um, for this uh, episode, we will also put a link to the Tim Shell translation so that you can, if you're listening, uh, learn more about that and Bonnie and her work there. And of course, order your copy. Yeah. Thank so, you. Well, thank you, Bonnie, so much for being on the podcast. It's been it's been a joy. This has been so fun. Thank you so much. I absolutely love it. And thanks to everybody listening. I, I just so appreciate um, all these great conversations we can have. For sure. So, and again, thank all of you, as Bonnie said, for joining with us for another episode of the Changing Faith podcast. Uh, my hope is very similar to Bonnie's, is that you would discover and rediscover the beauty and the nuance in the sacred text that's inviting us into deeper conversation. And I can say confidently, Tim Shell is an incredible way to help all of us on that journey of rediscovering this. And I cannot wait for all of you to read it. That is it for today's episode. Once again, thank you for joining with us. And until next time, as always, much love and peace be with you.